The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Good day. Good morning, everyone. This is uh, your host, Richard Address, welcoming you to another edition of Boomer Generation Radio, coming to you live from the studios, the beautiful, although chilly today, studios of WWDB AM 860 here in Greater Philadelphia. And we're streaming live on WWDBAM.com. And as we remind you, these shows are all podcasted and archived um, on my website, JewishSacredAging.com. And we have lots to talk about today, too. Very, very distinct and uh, powerful guest. Uh, our first guest, uh, Mr. William Benson, was uh, will be with us right after we check in with our good friends down the street at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall resident Harry Hammond. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall, a system of not-for-profit communities and services that advocates for and empowers older adults to reach their full potential. Kendall is committed to working with others as we together transform the experience of aging. To learn more about Kendall, that's K-E-N-D-A-L, visit discoverkendall.org or call toll-free 888 888- Welcome back to Boomer Generation Radio, today's edition, uh, coming to you from the studios again of WWDB AM 860 here in Greater Philadelphia, streaming live on WWDBAM.com, and we are very pleased to welcome to the microphone for our first segment in today's show, William Benson, the principal for Health Benefits ABCs. Uh, Mr. Benson, are you there? I sure am, Richard. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. First of all, um, what, what what is Health Benefits ABCs? It's the name of my consulting firm. Um, ABCs actually stands for Anderson Benson Consulting Services. Ah. And my partner Sue Anderson. So anyway, it's uh, it's our it's our consulting public policy firm. Well, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us here. Um, lots to talk about. Uh, <laughs> it's, wow! Yes, it's it's a store. It's a dark and stormy day here in, in Philly, um, and somewhat symbolic about what we want to talk about today about health benefits, health care, health issues in the United States of America. Perhaps um, I just came off from a, a, a scholar in residence weekend with a congregation in Louisiana, and we spent a significant amount of the two and a half days in workshops talking about the impact. Uh, of what I think will be the major social justice issue for baby boomers in the next couple of years, and that is health care, health benefits, who's going to pay for it, how are we going to pay for it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, obviously, with the new administration, there's a lot of, I would say, um, uncertainty in the United States about health care and the possibility of major changes. Uh, you, you mentioned in some of the communication we've had before about the fact that in the last several years there have been significant gains. And do I sense that you feel that a lot of these gains have the potential of being really restructured, if not in some cases wiped out? Oh, I absolutely do on many fronts, not just on health benefits, but across the spectrum uh, with our efforts to try to address elder abuse, for example, uh, the delivery of important social services like home-delivered meals and um, other services like that uh, for older people and on the long-term care side of things as well. So, yeah, I think there's a very much a, a risk of uh, not only 
uh, erosion, but um, perhaps even um, a, a complete dismantling of much of what you know many folks, myself included, feel we've spent several decades, uh, many decades, slowly trying to to build uh, systems of services and supports for older Americans, uh, their families and caregivers, uh, to ease the burdens that um, would otherwise be there. You consult with a lot of, for example, you you consult with companies, you consult with government. Is this a multifaceted? Yes, uh, primarily work with not-for-profit organizations um, as well as state governments and some private corporations. So a lot of these, especially not-for-profits, I would imagine, probably maybe thinking they're on very thin ice now about coverage and how to deal with it i gotta ask your point blank because it's it's again in the news uh yesterday and today about this these block grants ah thank you for asking that i mean it's it's from what i'm not an expert in this field by any stretch of the imagination you do this full time but from what i'm understanding one of the proposals is that we're going to send each check. We have 50 states, and each state's going to get, in essence, a check for a bunch of money. And that's the money that's going to fund Medicaid. And what happens when that money runs out? States, with a block grant approach, when the money runs out, the check that they'll get from the federal government, as you describe it, when that runs out, then the state is forced to then uh, turn to its own state coffers and figure out how they're going to raise the general revenue to offset additional costs. Uh, the beauty of the current Medicaid system as we know it is a shared responsibility between the federal and state government with um, the federal government matching funding that's provided by states. States already pony up for the Medicaid program, um, but the feds match that uh, to as much as 50% on every dollar. And um, it varies by state's uh, economy, but um, um, a block grant approach is a is a quite frankly it's a it's a tried and tested uh, method that Republicans enjoy. They like block grants uh, to basically cut federal expenditures, give states less money. Uh, the trade-off being we're giving you less money, but we're giving you greater flexibility as to how you spend that money. It's sort of a uh, a, a tough choice for a state. They want the flexibility, of course, uh, but what they're going to end up with is less money. Now, that's been used, uh, when I say a, a favorite of Republicans, um, under the Reagan administration, a, a number of um, block grant programs were put into effect, and one that I work with most closely is the Social Services Block Grant. So we've had experience with that block grant going back um, to 1981. And at one point, that amount, the total funding for the social services block grant, which incidentally is the most important um, source of funding from the federal government for human services to states, it's very flexible. Um, it was at $2.8 billion in the mid-1990s, and now it's at $1.8 billion. And now the new administration and the new Congress would like to repeal it in its entirety. And so for states... The only option there is to try to come up with money to offset from their own state coffers, and that's highly unlikely. Um, I think that on the Medicaid front, uh, the administration and the Congress will get pushback from the states on this because they know 
full well that Medicaid expenditures are going to grow just because the population is going to grow. Um, uh, we know that health care costs rise no matter what we try to do. We can, we can try to limit the increases, but health care costs rise with inflation if for no other reason, as well as technology increases and other um, uh, things that affect health care expenditures. States know that a fixed amount of money, no matter how much flexibility they have, um, is is going to be a very difficult thing to face when they're going to have increased expenditures. So I think the Medicaid block granting, as much as um, uh, the new president and the Congress have talked about wanting to do that, I think it's actually Republican governors who may fight back on that. We'll see. I mean, again, help me understand something, because I, I, this is really very, very important to every single baby boomer, and by implication, if I'm not mistaken, our children and, and potentially our grandchildren. If if the tax cuts that are proposed actually come to pass and they continue to do talk about these block grants things and, and the boomers are going to continue to age out, hopefully, God willing, over the next 20 to 30 years because even the first wave of boomers are just now 70, 71. Right. So you have to figure – Usually the way things are going, it's not unusual for people now to live into their 90s. Um, where, where's the money going to come from to pay for this huge increase in the older adult population if we reduce taxes and cut grants to fund some of these programs to states? I, and what am I missing? Well, I think you're not missing anything. I think the, if, if the funding doesn't come from the federal level – then in order to sustain levels of funding we have today or to meet the growth needs that you've described, then the only choice is either we pay for it out of state general revenue by raising taxes on um, uh, folks in our own states, um, or you do it at the local level, which is not likely through property taxes, or you force people to spend more and more out of their own pockets, which we've been doing anyway for a number of years. Um, out-of-pocket expenditures for Medicare, for example, for people have gone up considerably, and probably any listeners who are Medicare beneficiaries understand that. So, so um, the bottom line is you can't get um, you can't get blood out of a stone, you know. <laughs> and um, that's the direction that we're going if we make you know truly dramatic cuts in expenditures at the federal level. And and I think the writing is on the wall. That is going to happen one way or the other. Um, and so I think states are faced with a choice. We either have to pony up the money to offset the difference at today's cost, much less tomorrow, or we've got to see huge cuts in services and increased out-of-pocket expenditures. Uh, there's um, a, a highly respected, um, at least I believe highly respected, the Commonwealth Fund. It's, um, it's a think tank that really looks at health care policy, highly regarded, I think, on a bipartisan basis. A recent study um, from the Commonwealth Fund suggests that holding back the federal matching rates under block granting uh, would end up costing states nearly $50 billion over the next five years. There are North Dakota may be in the black because they've got lots of uh, pipeline oil revenue, but uh, I can't imagine that Pennsylvania feels it's in the black, much less most states, and can offset the loss of monies uh, that, that we're anticipating. Yeah, that's the, because I what little I know about state farm. I mean, I live in New Jersey, and, and our the catchment area of this station is Delaware, Pennsylvania, New Jersey. And I know New Jersey is not exactly 
<laughs> rolling in money. Right. Um, and it's one of the highest, if not the highest property tax states in, in, in the country. So the, the, it just seems for, for boomers and older adults who may be on fixed incomes, there's a trap there that implication is, um, higher costs, less, with less benefits and a, and to put it in a moral sense, a greater risk to life and limb. Which I, I think I think your assessment is exactly right on. I think it's exactly right, and, and I think nowhere will we see this play out um, than in, in terms of long-term services and supports. We, I think we already, most of us, believe that uh, too little support is going into supporting the long-term care needs that older adults face. The cost of nursing home care is extraordinary. Assisted living is very costly. Um, we, under the Affordable Care Act, there have been some really major attempts to try to sh- what, use the language of rebalance expenditures between the long-term care institutional side and services, uh, home and community-based services, to rebalance those a little bit through some innovations. And those would all disappear, um, we believe, if the Affordable Care Act were to be to re- repealed or, or you know, dramatically changed. But in terms of long-term care services and supports, we have been making progress in moving more of the resources into less costly home and community-based services, and the demand for those services is going to grow. And if we end up with just a fixed block grant, I can't. It's it's inconceivable that states would say, "Well, let's try to figure out how we spend more on long-term care for this." growing older population that's getting increasingly frailer as they move into their 80s and 90s and even into their hundreds in the years ahead. Is this why we're seeing in in every city that I travel to this explosion of home health care agencies, you know, ABC home health care and whatever will come, will take care of you in your home? It's I don't think a lot of it's not covered by insurance, but there's this whole... Desire absolutely, not to... absolutely right. I think it's two. It's, there's two things going on there. Uh, one is that, of course, just the demographics are, are driving us towards the need for more and more long-term care-related services, both uh, facility-based, but certainly um, home care agencies and home health and adult daycare and the like. But the other thing that's driving it is that there's so little coverage already for many of those services, particularly for people who are not Medicaid eligible currently. Uh, that there's there's they need the services and so we're seeing uh, just an explosion in the number of firms going into business trying to meet this need whether it's uh, attendant care or personal aids or full blown home health services and mm-hmm. other services alike. I mean the the need today is vast. Uh, the uh, the services are not there to support people in the way they need. The financing is not there currently and. Um, uh, under some of the proposals that we're looking at nationally now, it will be even less so in the future. And um, I, I can't imagine that many more people are going to have the private resources to be able to dig into their own wallets and pay for services to the level that they're going to need it for the, themselves or their, their um, aging parents. We're speaking with Mr. William Benson, the principal of Health Benefits ABC's Consulting. And um, do you have a sense off the top of your head, and if you don't, I understand, what Basically, the average nursing home cost is for a person? Oh, I, th- I think the average, off the top of my head, I think currently is running, a, I think the latest figures I've seen are around $85,000 a year. 
And about what about it to, to just to go into a basic double occupancy assisted living facility? Um, I think you're you're I'm, I'm, I'm now I'm I'm doing this off the top of my no, head. No, no, I understand Please that. Forgive me. But I mean, for really good quality, you're looking at fifty five, sixty thousand dollars a year for that as well, I believe. Yeah. And and yeah. And I've got, I've got to go back and double check that for you off the top of my head, but it's I mean it's just it's beyond the means of most people to, oh, people sure. to pay for that. Yeah. And we talked a, bit, a little bit about Medicare. What's what's what are your crystal ball looking at at the whole Medicare issue? Um, I I think that um, well I think two fronts. One is direct Medicare itself, um, the Medicare program uh, as we we called it original Medicare, the fee for service program. And then, of course, more recently, the um, uh, the Medicare Advantage plans that have uh, been expanding in popularity across the board. I don't know the popularity in use, I should say, and in probably use. popularity mm-hmm. as well. And then there's a number of Medicare-related things that appear in the Affordable Care Act as well, a lot of innovations to try to uh, address the relationship between uh, institutional care and home and community-based care, to try to bridge the gap between um, what we call the dual eligibles, these are individuals who are both eligible for Medicaid and Medicare, trying to um, help bridge those two programs so that it's uh, smarter and we are actually able to help folks. So Medicare is just this vast, uh, a vast program with many different tentacles. But I think um, we had, a, we had a, a new president who said that he wasn't going to touch Medicare um, but repealing the Affordable Care Act touches Medicare in its own right. Just to give you a small example, um, there's, and it's not a small example, I shouldn't put it that way, but, um, you know, one of the um, critical areas, of course, are what people have to pay out of pocket for their prescription drug coverage on, under Medicare Part D. And one of the beauties of the Affordable Care Act, some of the provisions under it, have been a move towards trying to close the gap uh, in that donut so people pay less out-of-pocket costs for their prescription drugs. And um, I, I think that uh, currently up to 9 million Medicare beneficiaries would be affected negatively by repealing the ACA's um, provisions dealing with closing the Medicare prescription drug coverage gap. So that just that one provision for Medicare prescription drug coverage would have dramatic out-of-pocket costs for folks. Um, I think the, the big fear, the, and, and whether or not they will pull this off remains to be seen, is, of course, um, eliminating Medicare as we know it and giving vouchers to individuals, basically giving them a, you know, a voucher that says this is worth X amount of money. Go out and shop the world. Um, the theory is, of course, that will then be an incentive, and it may well be, to many more companies getting insurers getting into the business and saying we're going to offer a Medicare plan of some kind or another. And so I'm just trying to visualize my 86-year-old mother, um, um, uh, who is 86 currently and, and still alive and very frail with multiple chronic conditions, trying to imagine my mother with a voucher in her hand trying to go out and figure out which of all these new plans out there is the one that's best for her. Uh, 
turning her voucher over, trying to deal with the complexities of insurers that are going to be changing on her constantly, as we've seen with the Medicare Advantage plan. So the, the, the worst image for me, of course, is that we get rid of Medicare as we know it, um, whether it's the fee-for-service approach or the Medicare managed care approach under a, an umbrella of the Medicare program and just go to a straight voucher program. Think of that as like mini-block grants on, a, on an individual basis. Well, that's the, the thing that I remember when this some discussion many years ago about trying to do the same thing with Social Security. And mm-hmm. and I remember saying to some people, Does, do, do all of us have the the intelligence and the, know, the knowledge of the ins and outs and innuendos of everything to sit down and make a, an intelligent decision by ourselves, which leads to, well, then there'll be a whole cadre of new experts who will then charge a fee to an order – in order to uh, lead us into the right program for our voucher, uh, it just seems to be so complex and also the implications for fraud. I mean, I can imagine somebody going to your 86-year-old mom and saying, yes, come to me and I will help you figure this out and it will charge you an inordinate amount of fee and hopefully you'll get what you pay for. You know, Richard, you, you you put your finger exactly on the issues, both the complexity, it'll, it'll spawn new private advisors, and it will perpetuate uh, dramatic new approaches to scams and frauds by doing that. I think a great example, the Veterans Administration has this really terrific benefit called the, Edern, the Veterans Aid and Attendance Program. It's really a neat program, and it was designed um, uh, specifically for veterans to say, if you have long-term care needs and the coverage you have isn't enough to meet your needs, so you're going to have to purchase some private home care services like a home health age or, or whatever it might be, this program is a cash benefit to you to allow you to go out and purchase that service. It's, it's really a nifty, neat program. Well, what has happened with that program is it's spawned this fraudulent industry of people who then go in and say to a group of seniors, they might do a seminar at a senior center and say, did you know that you served your country and there's this veterans aid and attendance program and you should sign up for it? I can help you get you um, signed up. I can see that you're eligible. I'll sign you up. And then they get a, then they get a lump sum payment. And these same people say, okay, now here's the smart thing to do. Take that money and purchase a long-term annuity. Um, and that's the way to take that money to uh, provide yourself an income stream down the road. Well, it's turned out to be a complete set of scams on older people, so much so that um, there's rules pending in the Veterans Administration. Legislation has been introduced in Congress to actually make it more difficult for the veteran to get that service, um, and so penalizing the veteran for uh, having having been basically duped and scammed in this program. And I think this aid and attendance program is just a microcosm of what we would see with the billions and billions and billions of dollars that would now be on the table in a voucherized Medicare program. Mr. Benson, there seems to be so many, obviously there are, issues that come up. To, how can a person, a consumer, let's just say, out there who may be listening, say, I would like to get involved in, in, in this issue, um, I don't know, I'm not an expert, but I want to get involved because I want to maintain and I want to se- help secure equality and justice and, and my own, my own health care. Where does somebody like that go? Your organization, uh, 
I want to, you know, I want to get involved. Where are AARP? Where do they go? Great, great question. And I think there are some multiple fronts. Certainly, AARP, um, you know, has a, you know, probably the largest um, advocacy uh, presence and lobbying force in Washington D.C. And you know, there's a lot of issues I wish they would weigh in on, but certainly I expect them to do that, and they will on the Medicare and Social Security front. But I think closer to home. Um, you know, there there are area agencies on aging in all of the jurisdictions that that are, your, are, that are included in your listening area. Um, many of them have um, uh, provide information about current issues going on for older people. Many of them provide advocacy opportunities. Um, in Philadelphia, you have you have the amazing uh, organization called Cari C A R I E, um, which is probably one of the nation's premier. Uh, community-based advocacy um, organizations for older people. Um, I would have folks contact Carrie. Uh, Carrie is engaged in long-term care issues. They're engaged in. Uh, they they run the the the, Medi- the anti-Medicare fraud program for the state of Pennsylvania. Right. They're we've always had, looking for. You probably know them. We, well. We've had them on the show. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you've got Carrie. Carrie is a gem. We need Carries in every state, and we don't have them, to be honest. But I think contacting the local area agency on aging, like Philadelphia Corporation for Aging in PCA, Philly, right, right. area in Philly, uh, and their counterparts of the area agencies on aging in your other jurisdictions. I think Delaware may not have area agencies on aging, but they've got a State Department of Aging. There are state chapters of AARP. I would suggest people, you know, make contact with them for sure. Uh, I think that would be a start, and and all of those organizations can tell you who else is doing the kind of get involved opportunities for older people. But I I think that's the most important question you've asked because I think people do want to get involved, and uh, they have reason they have reason to, quite honestly, they have reason to be alarmed. I mean, there's no question about that. The you you mentioned that that, that veterans aid program, and. Um I would assume, and maybe you'll tell me if it's a false assumption, there are several types of programs, laws, et cetera, that people are not aware of that would impact and can impact their own aging and health. Um, you, in, in, in something you sent me before the show, you, you mentioned uh, programs like the so- social services block grants or the yeah. elder justice. Could you just – we have about f- four minutes left in this segment. Could okay. you just t- – t- what are these programs that perhaps people don't even know about? And they don't. You're absolutely right. The Social Sur- Services Block Grant, or SSBG, is probably the most anonymous program in the country, but it's currently $1.8 billion in uh, very flexible funding directly to states to support a wide variety of activities serving children, people with disabilities, and older people. In fact, in 34 states, it is the principal funding for adult protective services. Uh, Pennsylvania is not one of those, um, but in other, many other states, 34 of them, New York, for example, almost entirely funds its adult protective services program to investigate reports of abuse, neglect, and exploitation um, uh, in their state, and that APS does it everywhere. You have a terrific APS program right in uh, Philly under the Philadelphia Corporation for Aging. Um, uh, Paul Ryan, who's, um, as you know, Speaker of the House, um, when he was the budget chair, he introduced um, budget resolutions several times to completely repeal the SSBG or Social Services Block Grant. Should that happen, 
um, we believe uh, that, that adult protective services in many states would be in dire straits. In fact, state APS administrators from those states say they probably would have to close their wow. doors because states aren't going to come up with the money. The Elder Justice Act is a, is a really important one. It was the nation's first significant legislation addressing elder abuse. It was, but unfortunately, it was part of the Affordable Care Act. If they were to just repeal the Affordable Care Act whole cloth, there would go the Elder Justice Act, which um, uh, provided a number of provisions addressing elder abuse in our country for the first time ever. It took 10 years to get that passed, and in one fell swoop, that could be gone. So we're really looking at, um, the, as, I, as, as I was alluding to before, the major social justice concerns basically for baby boomers and our children now is it's not theoretical anymore it's right here it's right in front of us and the implications for these potential changes that are being discussed and beginning um will affect human millions and millions and millions of human beings on a very very profound basic level of their health and potentially from what i'm hearing you say potentially their own threats to their own life and so this is I, I really think, a moral it's a moral justice issue I, I think it is and i think it really what became evident i think out of this most election cycles but certainly out of this one is people just don't know enough yet about what these policies are that are thrown about as being expendable or we should cut this or we should cut that um, yes everybody wants a sound defense but if the decision is made to cut all discretionary uh, non-defense expenditures in order to boost defense expenditures. Um, uh, we may we may have stronger security, which we all want, but we're going to have less security on the home front in terms of our health and well-being and our basic rights. And so I think, if nothing else, your message about uh, what can people do to get involved and to get involved, you need to at least have a basic understanding of what these programs are and what they mean to you. And so I think this is a this your show is the kind of thing that helps with that and then reaching out to some of the organizations that we've mentioned is the next step in doing that. So at least they're informed and know uh, what they're either watching get dismantled or arguing for uh, protecting or even enhancing, which would even be better in many cases. Mr. William Benson, the principal of Health Benefits ABC, I want to thank you very much for your expertise. Uh, and again, to sound the alarm uh, as to what potentially may be happening in these next couple of years. I wish you continued good good luck and success in this crusade, and it really is a crusade. So uh, thank you for joining us here on this first segment of today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. And to all of you, we'll be back with our second segment right after this little musical interlude, uh, a little retro music on a very cold and gloomy and cloudy uh, winter day.
Hi, this is Kendall staff member Sheila Sylvester. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall, a system of not-for-profit communities and services that advocates for and empowers older adults to reach their full potential. Kendall is committed to working with others as we together transform the experience of aging. To learn more about Kendall, that's K-E-N-D-A-L, visit discoverkendall.org or call toll-free 888 7590128 Welcome back to our second segment of today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio again coming to you from the studios of WWDB AM 860 here in Philadelphia and we're streaming live on wwdbam.com and again the shows are podcast and archived on jewishsacredaging.com and we welcome for our second segment guest Dory Mincer from beautiful I think Boston Massachusetts today. Dory, are you there? I am here. Yeah, are you Not getting so this sto- out. Are you getting that <laughs> storm that, that that blew away Philadelphia and the, and the Jersey Shore last night? Yeah, we've got the rain and the winds. Not the snow, but the rain and the oh, winds. Oh, don't even mention that obscenity. Please. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really dirty four-letter word. Anyway, Dory <laughs> Mincer, um, PhD, licensed psychologist, uh, life coach, author, speaker, TED Talk, Participant, uh, welcome to Boomer Generation Radio. It's nice to speak to you again, Dory. Uh, thank you for joining us. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, the book, The Couple's yeah. Retirement Puzzle. Uh, I guess the first easy question is, um, why puzzle and not guide? Well, I, I personally, so I co-authored this book, and I personally love the term puzzle because it's a noun and a verb. And if you think about it, there are a lot of pieces of a puzzle that we need to put together for our life, and it's unique to each of us. Um, they're, it's not going to fit together perfectly like a jigsaw puzzle, but there are pieces like if, when, and how to retire, finances, changing roles and identity, time together and apart, intimacy and romance, relationships, obligations to family, health and wellness, choosing where and how to live, social life and friends, purpose, meaning, and giving back, spirituality. There are all these puzzle pieces. 
and we they all impact each other in one way or another and we also need to puzzle it out for ourselves and if we're in a relationship Hopefully our partner or spouse or whomever's important in our life will puzzle it out. And then you work to try to create a shared vision, which includes some of what you both want or hope um, for the years ahead. What got you into this? What, what, was, what was the journey that you went on to bring you to uh, your coaching and your speaking and your writing around transitions and retirement? Well, I've always been interested in life transitions um, just throughout my life. I think partly because I moved around a lot as a child, and I always knew there were endings, middles, uh, kind of unknowns and new beginnings. And I, part of what interested me in terms of second half of life was my own journey in approaching second half of life. I began to work a lot with people in midlife transitions, and I'm one of what's called the leading-edge boomers. So there was all this hype you know, back when I was turning 60, I'm now 70, about, you know, the first of the boomers, 10,000 a day for 18 years. And I just found myself getting more and more interested in adult development, positive psychology, life transitions, holistic life planning. Um, and it sort of led to my developing this as a niche of working with people in the second half of life, trying to help individuals, couples, groups, speaking, writing, uh, teaching, um, to help people make this transition as successful as possible. We have a lot of years ahead of us. And you, you you're, I hope, <laughs> although <laughs> listening to our first guest today yeah. about the implications of the changes in Medicare and Medicare, I hope, I hope that, yeah. I hope so. I was listening to that, and I must say it's He's very, very good. He's very good. Very good, yeah. The, you're a coach. Um, mm-hmm. uh, talk to, talk, talk to oh. me about the coaching aspect of and, – and, and, and you are a therapist, correct. So right. how, did, how do you separate um, coaching from your therapeutic practice? Well, they're, they're different hats, but there's you know some part that's kind of – interdependent on each other because I understand people in life development and life stages, which I think helps me be a better coach. In therapy, although there are so many different types of therapy, but often in therapy, we're trying to understand more about the past and the impact on us in order to move ahead and not have there be obstacles so we have more choices in the future. And there also are parts of therapy that are much more solution-focused, and that those kinds of therapy overlap coaching a lot. Coaching is much more focused on the now and trying to look ahead and set goals and try to figure out how to reach the dreams that you have. And you deal with the past really only in the way that it's an obstacle to helping you move ahead. So it's not focusing in the same way as therapy. But, you know, through the course of coaching, it may be clear that there's some narratives you tell yourself, some stories you tell yourself that are getting in the way, and then it becomes important to say, you know, uh, what might be another way to think about that story so that, it, you know, we can't change the reality of it, but let's kind of look at different ways to frame it so that you can move forward and not be held back by this story that's hindering you right now. So, so Dory, 
in your in your work, in, not only in the therapy practice, but in the coaching practice, and also in your speaking, your workshops, et cetera, et cetera. Right. What I'm sure you've you've run across people who are facing this transition. They'll come to a session. What are their greatest fears? What 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 are the what are people most afraid of as they they look out into this um, new world and basically that in many cases cases not really prepared for. You know, we go to school to learn how to be a you know an accountant or a lawyer or or whatever. We we don't go to school to learn how to deal with the next thirty years of our life yet. Oh, that's very true, and that you know, as you say, yet it may it may yet change. There are a number of fears that people have because it is, you know, uncharted territory in many ways, although there are some wonderful role models out there. We just need to kind of look around and see and learn from people older and also learn from people younger. I think one fear, though, is the unknowns about how our health is going to be. Research does tell us that by the time we're 65, it's less about genes, only 30% and more about the parts you can control. 70% is attitude, lifestyle choices, nutrition, exercising your body and brain, um, spirituality, meaningful relationships. But, but a fear is the unknown of health, health. Another fear that many people have is not wanting to outlive their money. Right. Some people have invested well. Um, and have money, but there's so many curveballs in life and so many other demands, and there are many in the boomer generation who've been still paying off their own loans and maybe their children's taking care of aging parents, um, so that, unfortunately, there are a lot of people who reach the, quote, traditional retirement age who don't have a mon- enough money set aside, and so then there's the prospect of how much more do I need to work or do I want to work? Um, so that I don't outlive my money. Um, Social isolation is a fear. Many people, if they have decided that they're not going to work or work in a different way, um, friendships may have been through work. And I I know this is a gender stereotype, but often many men tell me when I do workshops or my clients that it's much harder for men to make contacts and develop to build community than women. But we all need community, whether it be faith-based or interests that we share. And people, I think, do fear too much isolation, spiraling into depression. Um, So I think those are some of the fears of being alone. I mean, we we still, um, not even just the isolation, but women still are outliving men, although the gap is narrowing a little bit. But at some time or another, the likelihood is that you know most of us may spend some time alone, and it's important to build in the safety nets. You know, when you think about transitions in that unknown period, or if you think about people with the trapeze um, at a circus, you know, they have to let go. They there may be this free fall of this uncertain period, and then a new beginning. But there's usually a safety net, and it's important for people, I think, to build in a safety net. And I think people are fearful and don't always think ahead of, about that. Um, so I think those are, I mean, there are more fears than that, but I think those are the fears. And, and just becoming less independent, um, more potentially dependent on other people, less autonomous, 
And that's where I think it goes back to con- controlling the parts that you can so that you can try to stay as active and vital as possible. How do you, in your work, uh, and, the, and the fears that you, the, the, these, this, this trio, the big three, as I call them, the, of health and money and um, isolation and aloneness, all of which are true. Um, how do you begin to, to work with a person to move them and to understand that this this is a transition that may be part of the natural progression of life and to turn a negative into a positive? Because you, you talked about positive psychology and mm-hmm. attitude and um, – not everyone, I'm sure that you comes to your workshops or your sessions or buys the book, uh, are in a social economic situation where they really don't have to worry about anything. In fact, probably the majority of the people do have some concerns. How do you emphasize the positive approach to one's own aging? Well, there are a number of ways. One is I I try to help people develop a frame of thinking about what well-being is, and this is where I'm really influenced by positive psychology, that well-being is connection, engagement, purpose, and meaning. And when you think about it, work or active parenting gives us that. It gives us some structure. It often gives us community. It gives us, if we're in a relationship, time together and time apart. Generally, it gives us self-esteem, even though sometimes we may want to pull our hair out in terms of work or active parenting. Um, It gives us a a reason to get out of bed in the morning. And when somebody's not working or working in a different way or the children have moved out, often people don't realize um, that they need to figure out how to build that into their life. So part of how I often will work with people is trying to figure out no matter how much or little money they have of how to build that into their life. What will give them a sense of connection? And it's not just being busy for the sake of being busy, but connecting, being engaged in something, developing community, reaching out to people. It may be volunteering. If you know, in addition to working, it may be trying to do some volunteering, feeling like you're, you have a purpose and meaning and you're giving back. It may be, you know, realizing that you still do need to work and earn money and trying to think about what are the skills that you have or what maybe are the gaps in some of the skills that you have that will, will enable you to keep working. So it's trying to help people figure out what that next action step can be, what will help them feel a bit more connected and engaged and, and meaning in their life. Uh, a colleague and friend of mine who's a wonderful 85-year-old woman who I so admire, she's one of my role models, Dan Hively, um, has this mantra which I subscribe to, which is meaningful work paid or unpaid until our last breath. And I often share that with people and try to help people figure out what for them will give that purpose and meaning for themselves. So a lot is around the, the connection, the engagement. I really do think it believe, you know, it, it is true. It takes a village to raise a child when they're younger, and it takes a village really throughout our life. And, it, and again, as, as we get older and trying to figure out how do, you, how do you build that community and village in. So that's one part of, of uh, working with people. The other is, you know, some people think that no, they don't have enough money to see a financial advisor. I really recommend no matter how much or how little money you have, it's helpful 
to have another person look with you at what your hopes and dreams are about how you want to live your life and then try to figure out how your money is going to help you do that. So to find a financial planner that has what's called a holistic approach, so they're not just looking at the money and the investments, but trying to help you figure out, no matter how much or little you have, how to have some of those lifestyle options or some of the choices that you hope to have. Yeah, I know we've had on a regular guest on a on a quarterly basis, uh, uh, Peter, one of a financial advisor who really has preached his mantra is a lot of the things that you're talking about in a very holistic mm-hmm. ex- a holistic uh, a- approach. The um, you, you alluded to something that I just want to ask you a little bit more about in your work. I just came off of a, a teaching weekend and and sat with a whole group of people on Sunday afternoon. Um, Asking them was conversations about their own faith community, and once again, the the motivation for a lot of the people sitting around that table uh, is what I call the give back syndrome. I'm at a stage in my life where um, I've been touched by people. Um, I want to give something back to the community. Are you seeing this uh, a lot more amongst boomers uh, now? This this sense of I, I have a certain sense of economic or social security, not not the program, but uh, right. in the community. I want to. It's time for me to give something back. I have enough houses. I have enough stuff. Now I need to give other s- spiritual stuff back to the world. Absolutely, I, I've been seeing it a lot, and I think it's been ramped up since this election um, because I think people are scared. Um, and worried about the future of our world, our, our country and our world, the planet. Um, so I'm hearing more and more people thinking about how can I give back. Um, I try to um, help people know also about another organization. It's called Saging International, which is um, helping people develop an identity of being basically an elder in our society. If you think about it, in our particular society, elders aren't revered, and they are in other parts of the world. And if you no longer have your work identity, some people struggle with, well, who am I? And there are many other parts of ourselves that we are, but one way is to really think about yourself as as an elder. And there's also a conscious elder network, which helps people who maybe don't have a community connect with others around issues like climate change or health care or, you know, women's rights. So there are many ways, and I'm seeing this more and more. You know, the boomers basically came of age, as I did, in the 60s, and there was a real sense of community and wanting this world to be the best place that we could be. And I think what I'm seeing, and, you know, not just among boomers because they're people older and you know, it's beginning, I think, to develop among some of the younger people, too, is a sense that we really do have to come together and give back because it's going to be up to us to join with others to try to help make this world a safer place and a place that's going to continue to exist. Yeah, the saging uh, component, too. In fact, if people are interested in following up, we we actually had somebody from uh, that organization on in December and oh, the podcast is on the web, the Jewish Sacred Aging website, Jerome uh, Kerner from New York, mm-hmm. uh, who's uh, very involved with that. In, in your work, in your, in your, in your 
all of your work dealing with boomers, etc. Um, I want to talk. A li- I want you to talk a little bit about the courage that people need to really take hold and, in essence, change their life. Because I, I'm sure you see this. Um, I mean, I, I would. I'm, gonna, I'm, yeah. I'm sure you see this. People coming to you and say, "I've always wanted to do this." I'm at a stage in my life, I'm 68 or 72, I have my pension, I'm retiring, I don't want to sit and clip coupons, but I've always wanted to be a painter, I've always wanted to uh, do X, Y, Z. How, how often is this really part of your work? Very often. I, I, I see both situations. I see sometimes people come in and they have a dream that they've never been able to realize and so part of my work may be supporting them and helping them break it into sort of steps to help them move toward that. There are also a lot of people who come in who have no idea um, how to just be or what they might want to do. And I often will encourage people to think about what interests they might have had to put on the back burner with all the other demands of life. Or what were some things just in there when they let themselves just dream um, to uh, imagine what they want to do? There's a there's a wonderful visualization that I often have people do, and listeners can uh, try it on their own, which is getting yourself relaxed and just imagine yourself on this long circuitous journey of your life, and you get to a a, a house in the woods, and you climb the stairs and knock on the door, and you meet your hundred-year-old self, or you can put whatever age on it that you want, and you embrace each other, and you sit and you can ask this um, elder you um, some advice. And often what people come up with is the advice is, don't be afraid, take some risks, try to do it. Um, And many times that helps give people permission to try something new. Part of what we know with brain development is that there's more balance in the brain as we get older, and there's often more creativity. And it's not necessarily creativity with the big C, um, but it can be just allowing oneself to get in touch with the wisdom and perspective and the creativity that's inside of you to try something new. And, you know, I encourage people with lifelong learning to, you know, take art courses, to um, do volunteer work. Um, sometimes it's joining with an organization. You know, you've always wanted to travel, but you also want to give back. There are many opportunities now of being able to combine that where you feel like you're helping others and seeing this country as well as the world. So, In, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say part of um, part of what I try to help people come you know, kind of recognize is this is a chance, probably the first time in our life, with less shoulds and oughts at least, so that there's a chance to become more whole, to, you know, kind of integrate all these different parts of yourself and to figure out how you want to express them, you know, what you want to do with those gifts that you have and to, you know, to own them, not to buy into the old paradigm of of aging, which is that it's all downhill, Uh, Or this ageism, like, well, I can't try something new because I'm too old. That's only in your mind. Um, I've been impressed with what I see people 
being able to do when they set their mind to it. Real fast, because we only have about three minutes yeah. left in this segment. Uh, it, the the um, couple's retirement puzzle book. Somebody wants mm-hmm. to get a hold of it. Give me uh, where they can get it, websites, etc. Okay, it's available um, Amazon, um, and also my website is revolutionizeretirement.com. Say that again. And I revolutionize retirement. So it's www.revolutionizeretirement.com, and um, Listeners can see a number of books, other books, too, that I've contributed to. I also have a free monthly webinar I'd like to invite anyone to. It's the fourth Tuesday of each month at 12 noon Eastern time. I call it my uh, fourth Tuesday Revolutionize Your Retirement interview with experts to help you create a fulfilling half of life. And I interview people that I've met from around the globe at conferences or people who are authors that I've read their books. And it's free and once a month, and you just have to sign up the week before. And even if you can't be there live, if you're interested in the topic, you'll get a recording of the call. So I invite people to check that out. So in the last minute and a half, uh, Dory Minster, I'm going to – real easy question. In your coaching, in your therapy, in your talks with boomers as they look forward into the life, how powerful is one their own death anxiety in their motivation? Oh, I think it's it's a big motivator. And I think once you come to terms with the fact that we are all mortal and we will die, it, it, it really sets up even more excitement about living life as fully as you can so that you don't reach the end with regrets. That's a big part of the work I do of helping people really think about their end-of-life issues and wishes um, the ethical letters, you know, work, you know, wanting to think about how they want to be remembered, their legacy. Um, it's a big part of the work. And I try to help people frame it in that, yes, they're less years ahead than behind us, but what's important is to make them the best years that we can. Dory Mitzer, uh Therapist, coach, author, speaker, uh, counselor, workshop facilitator, uh, very, very thankful for your time and your compassion and your sensitivity and your empathy and all the work that you're doing. And I, I wish you continued good luck and success and uh, keep in touch. And uh, everybody, uh, the book available uh, on Amazon. And real fast, we have in the last 10 seconds, Dory, there, your website again is? www.revolutionizeretirement.com, all one word. Thank you, Dory. Good luck to all of you. Thank Thank you you again for joining us on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. We'll see you next Tuesday. And for everybody, stay safe, everyone. Take care. Thank you, Dory.